The show is also sponsored in part by Past Generation Toys. Past Generation Toys has a large selection of Star Wars, G.I. Joe, and Marvel toys. Visit them on the web at pastgenerationtoys.com. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting issue of the Major Spoilers Podcast. I'm Stephen Schlanker. Thanks for joining us on this weekend. We've got an exciting show for you here. We've got Dr. Peter Coogan, director of the Comic Arts Institute, coming in to talk about some of the upcoming conventions and panels and and uh, conferences that are going on, as well as kind of do some follow-up on some of the uh, past discussions that we've had here on the Major Spoilers Podcast. Dr. Peter Coogan, welcome back to the show. Hi, Stephen, and I've got to say it's the... Institute, Institute for, for Comic, Comic Studies. All right, I just and always I, get I those have to backwards. say that because uh, I'm the the uh, organizing chair of the Comics Arts Conference. Ah, okay. But the Comics Arts Conference is not an Institute for Comic Studies production. And, okay. Uh, that's a Comic Con only thing, and I always like to make that distinction. So okay, uh, we will get this right one of these times that you're on here. Institute of Awesome works pretty well. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Major Spoilers Podcast. This week on the show, we've got Dr. Peter Coogan, the director of Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> it is always good to have you here on the show, uh, Dr. Coogan. And we were exchanging some emails this past week. And my goodness, you have got a bunch of conferences and conventions that you guys are going to. What's going on? What are some of the highlights? Let's touch on some of the highlight big uh, conferences that are going on that sure. people might want to take notice of. Well, um, one thing that's going on, unfortunately too late for this show, is mm-hmm. ICAF, which is the International Comics Art uh, Forum, and it takes place at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, it was uh, talking uh, in the future of the past. Right. It Hello, was on people. Thursday, October 15th, It's which is tomorrow, but... By the time people hear this, it'll be in the past. And uh, ICAF is a fantastic conference. It's um, it's um, a juried conference, which mm-hmm. means it's the kind of highest level of academic conference. And they've right. got quite, you know, comics and region questions of, of identity. Uh, they present the John Lent Scholarship in Comic Studies, and and things like that, like that award, are important because if comic studies is going to uh, uh, become a more normal field, it has to develop the institutions of academia. And one of those institutions are conferences, jury mm-hmm. conferences, and another are awards. Um, they do an excellent job of presenting sort of high-level scholarship, and they get a lot of, they get support from outside institutions. And so that's that's a great thing because it demonstrates the way that comics can gain support from a larger thing. Uh, they have some support from uh, Gene Schultz, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Schultz's widow, Andrews McMeal Universal, the, the uh, uh, comic strip uh, syndicator. Oh, right. Uh, Institute Cervantes of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it's great. That makes them international. It helps to bring it. They bring in people from Spain and from all over the world. So it's a, it's a, it's a unique conference that uh, if – Anybody uh, can go. Think about going next year. Um, I think it would be a great idea to do that. Well, can you kind of just briefly talk? A lot of our listeners don't come from academia where you and I come from. Can you tell the, explain the difference between a juried conference and maybe a presentation that you put on at a, an event like Comic-Con? Sure. Um, 
a juried conference means that the proposals come in and they're blind juried. So the names are stripped off them. Mm-hmm. So there's no favoritism. And the proposals are, um, are uh, evaluated just on the strengths of scholarship. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like in uh, it's like in music when they do blind auditions, they have the they have the musicians play behind a screen. Right. And so nobody knows who they are. And one of the things that did uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, he in Blink, he says that it, it 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 promoted women because once the prejudices couldn't uh, determine who got in, uh, uh, the playing ability was what determined it. So that's the highest level of academia. But it's not the only thing. There's there's also open admissions, the popular the popular culture association conference, which is coming up in Easter. Easter weekend in April, first weekend in April, here in St. Louis, actually, okay, um, is a, has a great comic section. But they follow Ray Brown's idea. Ray Brown, founder of the uh, the Popular Culture Association, that he wants everybody to come in. You know, oh, okay, he, he wants it to be open, and and what that does is that really builds the field. It allows for you have a lower bar to entry, so your quality has a greater range, mm-hmm. but. Um, it, it gets people interested. My first conference was a popular culture association conference. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't have continued if it hadn't been for the positive feedback that I got and the, right. the, the feeling that I was participating in the field. Um, then you have sort of uh, middle level ones, sort of juried conferences, but not blind juried. And the comics arts conference is that way. Okay. So at the, at Comic-Con we have, we get presenta- presenters who come in and, you know, we, when we pick when we put panels together, part of it is knowing who the presenters are. But that's there's a purpose for that, and one of the purposes is that because the Comics Arts Conference exists partially to build the field, to build connections between academia and industry, mm-hmm. and also to to change the face of comic scholarship for the public, to get the public to realize that there is comic scholarship. When right. we started the conference back in the '90s. And I think it was Neil Adams who said this to me. He said that he, he wanted to keep – I know he said he wanted to keep comics low to the ground like rock and roll. And, he, he, and I think he said this, that his model of, of a comic scholar was Frederick Wortham. Mm, okay. You know, so he wasn't interested in people studying comics. Right. Well, okay, I understand why because of you know, when he started in comics and everything. That's a legitimate position, but that's not who comic scholars are now. Mm-hmm. So now when we have them, when we meet at the Comic-Con, part of it is to bring professionals in, scholars and professionals coming together to talk about comics in front of the public. And we have something that happened last year. Um, a, a grad student from the University of Colorado at Boulder stood up. This was at a panel on, on museum shows, gallery mm-hmm. comics. Uh, Dennis Kitchen uh, was there um, with a couple of scholars. And she said, you know, I didn't, I didn't know you could do this. And so she's going to take it back. She's always had an interest in comics, but she's never been able to get her department to recognize that. Right. So she's going to go back and push for an art historical approach to comics. Oh, okay. Now, she didn't have that before we had the conference. If we didn't have the conference, she might not ever have gotten that idea. Yeah. So part of the reason we, we don't do a blind jury is that we like to put the panels together in certain ways because we are – doing it in front of the public and, and we're doing it at the Comic-Con, we want to make sure that um, uh, the presentations happen in a certain slightly more accessible way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's not that we, we, we lessen the academic rigor at all, 
but it's that you have to assume a knowledgeable audience and there's certain things about it. And so it's helpful if we know who the people are to put them together. And because we have scholars with professionals, we we can't do that blind at right. all because you kind of have to know who the parties are. Yeah. You know, if you, if you know, you're going to have like the Joker panel we had with, uh, with Jerry Robinson and Adam West and Steve Englehart and uh, Michael Uslan, we had uh, um, psychologists and psychiatrists on the panel too, right. psychology professors and a, and a clinical psychiatrist, um, Robin Rosenberg. And so that it just doesn't work, but it's a, it's because it has different, it has a public intellectual uh, uh, purpose to bring mm-hmm. the, the industry, let them know what's going on in the academy to make connections between the academy and the industry and also to do it so the public gets a different vision of what academia and scholarship can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that does it seem then, I know certainly from the, you know, on the academic side and having a juried panel and, and, and a conference like that, that that's more, it seems to keep it more into the academic side. But when you can open it up to more general public uh, attendance, acceptance, understanding of the topic, that seems to be where you might have the biggest bridge in addressing scholarly activities related to to the comic book world, well, you know, if comic studies is going to be a field like any other field, that that sort of public side, in one sense, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Inside, it, it's all about the political economy of academia. By which I mean, what are the things that are valued? What are the currency that people have? Right. Um, juried conferences uh, have a higher level of currency than are worth more. Right. Than unjuried conferences. Right. Right. So, um, at things, same thing with uh, peer reviewed articles have mm-hmm. a higher value than uh, non peer, than just editorially reviewed articles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, those sorts of differences are important to the academic side. They're irrelevant to the, um, to, to the public. Right. You right. know, and, and so that's why with the, the, the Comics Arts Conference, it's not completely open like the PCA. Because we do have standards that we apply, but it is it is not blind jury because we have certain needs because we're dealing with the public and we're dealing with we are in a sense part of the show we're part right. of the programming and we we have to shape things so that we we make a um we we make a a, a put together a a a program that appeals to people works in certain ways um, there's certain people I know will go well together. Mm-hmm. So I might put them together. Um, there's certain people, uh, Neil Cohn is a linguist. He's a visual linguist. Um, and, and I always want to give him, I always want to make sure he gets a, a, a presentation panel rather than a, um, we also do a thing called a um, poster, a poster session, mm-hmm. right? Poster session. And I want to make sure Neil, because Neil brings something to academic theory of comics that, we're not going to get elsewhere. Okay. Um, and it's important for me to know it's him doing it because I know he's very, very good at making, he has what I call the flowers for Algernon effect. Mm-hmm. When you're listening to him, you're a genius <laughs> because you understand it. <laughs> yeah. When, when he stops talking, you start to kind of reach for it. It's like the flowers for Algernon story, you know, right. it, uh, it's you know, a guy got these drugs and boosted his IQ and then it all sort of fades. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Neil Cohn is the person who does a lot for changing that image of academia, changing that idea of comic scholars. Um, and so it's useful to know when he's presenting, or, you know, it's useful to know, to put together a panel maybe around him, or right. I know that he can anchor a panel 
which then allows me to ha- have a little more play with the other people who are, who are going to be on it. So, but again, these things are there's a there's a there's a variety of different sort of forces operating in uh, putting together um, panels, and different different conferences do it different ways. Um, and that's one of the great things, actually. Moving on to what we have going on next year, the we have two comics arts conference sessions: one right. at WonderCon, right. which is also Easter weekend in okay. April. April's a busy month, and then at at the regular Comic Con, San Diego Comic Con. Mm-hmm. Um, through the Institute for Comic Studies, we have Wizard World University, and we're doing Wizard World Anaheim for the first time. Oh, okay. Also in April, <laughs> April sixteenth wow. through eighteenth. We're doing Wizard World Philly, uh, and that's in June. And mm-hmm. then we're doing Wizard World Chicago, which is in August. And with Wizard World Universities, those are really sort of academic tracks. They're they're kind of more driven maybe by the by the con mm-hmm. than by the straightforward academic part of it. And but again, that's there to do sort of spread the word about comic studies to the public. Right. Um, it's um, it's a kind of a maybe a lower bar. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it we're we're just building these now, so we're kind of looking for wider wider set of proposals, wider submissions. We're we're uh, more likely to take more people because we have more time to fill. Right. Um, the Comic Starts Conference, for instance, we're probably going to have to start uh, really turn maybe even turn into a, a more juried conference because we're running out of time and space. We're mm-hmm. full, mm-hmm. you know, and and we we can't fit everybody in, so we're going to have to start turning down. Um, not so much for quality because what we get is high quality, but we're going to have to start making sort of differential quality decisions I see. and about, about our larger vision. But Wizard World University, we still have a lot of growth and space there, and that's going to become, just like Wizard World itself has kind of become more regional mm-hmm. with, their, with their multiple things and, and uh, kind of the, the shrinkage of the industry's ability to support all these Comic-Cons. Uh, we're hoping to make our Wizard World universities more sort of regional things. Yeah, that's got all those. It seems like every weekend in April, you've got something going on with one of these conferences. That's got to play hell for somebody who's also trying to teach because that's right at the end of the end of the semester. Yeah. Ah, I, I well, you know, when, when I taught at uh, Bowling Green, when I was there as a graduate student, you know, we closed down during the PCA because oh, everybody yeah. went to it. So the popular culture department shut down. And that happens with conferences. The, the Modern Languages Association Conference, which this year has a comic section. Oh, cool. It's actually broken into the MLA. And the, the funny thing for, about that for me is I remember years ago, this uh, scholar, Lucas Amigles at SUNY, um, Stony Brook, mm-hmm. he, he had proposed a panel called Comics, The Final Frontier of Academia. And he got back uh, um, a letter saying that, that they were academicizing the subject in just the wrong way. Mm, okay. So they were rejected. I want to put that on, on the T-shirts next year for the <laughs> Comics Arts Conference. Um, well, academicizing the subject in just the wrong way since uh, 1992. You know, it's interesting that you're talking about you know, certainly there are some schools, and we've talked about schools that offer courses in comics, and we've talked before in past shows that you've been on about um, colleges and universities that have departments about popular culture. It was right. interesting. I was talking to one of the deans of the College of Arts and Sciences today at a luncheon, and he had read an article about me in comic books, and he was like, well, what do you think about using comic books and other media to get people interested in a topic like literature, literature topics. And I was like, well, funny you should mention that because we just did a show not too long ago where we talked about how 
you know, comic books can be that gateway into learning and to understanding. And he was like, hmm, this is, you know, this is fascinating. This might be something that I that we might want to consider passing along to certain departments that they might want to try to incorporate comic books or other things into the learning experience. Yeah. And so this is this is a good good thing. And that's something actually with the uh, X Institute for Comic Studies that I I can help you with. We'll talk about this afterwards. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to that dean because that's one of the things that you know we're trying to do with X is build that up because comics act as a draw. Mm-hmm. You know, um, students want comics, want to study them. They are important because of the way they teach visual literacy. Right. And visual literacy is becoming more and more crucial. Um, and they're actually a recruiting tool. For universities, um, I'm, I'm planning to put together something in St. Louis called the St. Louis Area Comics Friendly Faculty, or Slack Off, uh, <laughs> where we bring where we yeah, where we bring uh, comics faculty in the area together to talk about what they do, how they teach, present their own research, and 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 bring in um, some uh, professionals. But we're hoping to have this at Webster University here in St. Louis in the spring. Well, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to try to hit all the admissions offices to get them to send someone to just be in the audience. Yeah. Because if you have two schools that are essentially identical Mm -hmm. and one has comics and the other doesn't, you're going to draw a certain number of people are going to pick your school because of comics. Wow. It's going to happen. Yeah. And so the more that the admissions departments, admissions offices can know about what's going on in terms of a school's comics they can stress that, and I'll, I'll talk now about the uh, the University of Oregon right. has a conference, and it's coming up um, uh, next week, in fact, October 23rd and 24th, um, and Danny Fingeroth is a speaker, Charles mm-hmm. Hatfield, a comic scholar, and Henry Jenkins. Henry Jenkins uh, does a great blog called Confessions of an ACA Fan, an academic okay. fan, uh-huh. um, and they have uh, an exhibition. If anybody's up there in Eugene, uh, in Portland, in that area – you can go to the conference and you can go to the Museum of Arts exhibition, Faster Than a Speeding Bullet, The Art of a Superhero. Oh, cool. And they, uh, I just talked to Ben um, Saunders, the, uh, the English professor there is putting it together. And they got, in their first three hours they were open, got like, for the first day they were open anyway, got 1,500 people. Really? That broke a record. It broke the uh, Andy Warhol exhibit record of about 1,200. Wow. And so... And what they found was, what uh, the development office found, is that they would be bringing somebody in for some, you know, science thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, oh, and they'd just be talking about events. And they'd say, oh, you know, we've got this superhero exhibit. What? Superhero exhibit? (laughs) And they would, and the the potential donors would want to go see the superhero exhibit. Oh, cool. And so that got the development office really, they were behind it. There was no real problem with it, but it, 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 raised it in terms of the profile and got it on everybody's radar because they found that they could mention this was an extra thing, mm-hmm. but it made the donors more interested in donating to the school. Cool. Why is that? Because, you know, scratch, scratch the surface and you get a, you know, there's a geek under the surface. Right, right. right. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a lot of original art. It's some amazing stuff. Um, and, you know, they're having a, it's a superhero conference, which is, it's, I believe it's the second superhero conference. The first one was in Australia back in 2005, but it's the first one here in the States. Um, you know, what Jack, Kirby, 
Charles Hadfield's talking about what Jack Kirby did to the superhero. Mm-hmm. Kurt Busiek, Greg Rucka, Gail Savone talking about writing the contemporary superhero. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 again, it's a mixture of scholars and professionals talking about um, what's going on with superhero. Henry Jenkins talking about uh, David Mack and the formal limits of the superhero genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish I was going to that, but I'm going, in fact, the next week. Uh, because besides the conference, they're continuing with a whole semester of superheroes. Oh, cool. And now, so is this gonna... part of a broader university push, or is this a departmental thing, or is this just a series of, of guest lectures put on like by their, their university activities board? Or Well, it, it arose from Ben Saunders in the English department. Okay. Um, but the school has really uh, really taken it up and has really gotten behind it, and they're they're potentially... The school's potentially interested in, uh, in you know, looking at comic studies and so forth and superheroes. Um, and wh- what they did was they, they were going to have a small art show and a big conference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, partially because of the economy, they're having a, a big art show and a small conference. But sense. they're extending the conference through the semester by bringing in speakers. I'm going to talk on the essence of the superhero with uh, Douglas Wolk. Okay. Author of uh, Reading Comics. Okay, cool. Yeah. And what you're, it says here in this uh, info that you had sent before, it says your talk is going to be about called Heroes Ain't Superheroes. Exactly. The now, TV show. Heroes this is about the TV show. Is not a superhero show. Really? Now, wait a minute. Let's, let's look at this. Because this is good. You know, we got into a lot of trouble a few episodes ago where we were talking about how Heroes is just a ripoff of the X Men. But. Heroes has got people that are flying around. Heroes have got people that are fighting bad guys and villains and stopping the world from blowing up. I mean, that's a superhero show. You know, Gilgamesh did a lot of that stuff, <laughs> and he wasn't a superhero. Uh, and I, I actually lay that on my book. He was a he's a superhero, a hero who is super rather than a superhero, right? A, a protagonist of the superhero genre, and that's what I mean by heroes ain't superheroes. They are. Ah. In some ways, superheroes, heroes who are super, mm-hmm. but not superheroes. Okay. There's an iota of difference there, but it's an important difference. Okay. It's like the difference um, between model and supermodel, but not exactly. <laughs> uh, or every day and every day. That's okay. Better right. Analogy. That's right. in my book, um, which is coming out again in August. Superhero, Secret Origin of the Genre. It's uh, going to come out again. Sorry, in uh, in April. Okay. Again, April. Um but the reason it is an, a superhero show is that it's rooted in a genre that precedes the superhero called uh, science fiction super folks or science fiction super people. So this would um, be like Buck Rogers? No, and... no, no. Well, Buck Rogers a little bit, but it goes back really to Frankenstein. Oh, okay. It's, the, uh, it's about uh, Homo Superior, the next generation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Frankenstein, you have, you have this – you have a, a superior human being created through – um, uh, through science, mm-hmm. and uh, there's this threat of uh, gen- generational genocide. That you know, over time, um, the 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 Homo superior is going to replace the Homo sapien. Right. Right. Now, heroes and the X Men. You know that all goes back to there's a novel called Odd John, mm-hmm. written by Olaf Stapleton, Olaf, yeah, in 1930 uh, or published in 33, actually, I think. And, you know, it's about a bald telepath who draws young mutants to him to protect them from the world. Mm-hmm. What is that story? Man, that sounds like Charles Xavier. That's Charles I Xavier. It, I, I wonder if Stan Lee ever read that. 
You know, um, I don't believe that he did, but okay. uh, I never did. I meant to, I should see if I could ask him about that. Although at this point, you know, is really he going to remember something he yeah. read 80, 80 years ago? Yeah. You know, it, it, it seems, seems like they might have read it because, you know, but there's been no, I've never seen anybody connected with the X-Men talk about Odd John, but it's the same basic story. And what, it, what Heroes does is, yes, Heroes is, it models itself on the X-Men, but mm-hmm. that's because the X-Men is a homo superior story in spandex. Right. And so the X-Men is the easiest, most easily available story for them. And the thing about Heroes that is they draw on comics. You know, the first season was Watchmen as much as it was X-Men, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and right now with the whole carnival thing, you know, that's the brotherhood, but they call themselves the family. Right. You know, that's clearly drawn in Magneto. And, uh, but they've drawn on more than just the X-Men. Part of it is that you wish the show would come up with its own storylines. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people said, you know, season two was the, uh, what was it, the Days of Future Past storyline kind of thing. But you Except know, for season one was Days of Future Past. Oh, okay. Past. Well, I, you know, I, also, I'm not a big X-Men reader, so uh, I can't uh, tell you what the major storylines are. No, I mean, they, they, that's the thing, is they did that storyline twice. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, so that's one of the problems just with the production of Heroes, is that they have relied, I think, too heavily on uh, sources and influences. And, and maybe it's an homage. It's It's hard to believe that they just it's just out of laziness. Mm-hmm. Well, what if it's what if it's a, as we've talked before? What if it's a gateway? What if people are like, "Hey, this hero thing's kind of good." Now, if Marvel were to really kind of play up on this, they'd actually buy some commercial time or some advertisement somewhere that said, "Hey, if you like heroes, you might like the X Men Gateway." You're right. They but should they, do that. Yeah. But it's amazing how how uh, how they companies keep missing the boat on this stuff. Well, now that they're purchased by Disney, maybe some of that'll change. So but heroes I'm, don't wear the heroes don't wear spandex. Right. Well, the thing about if you look at superhero origins, let's just stick with that, right? Okay. And an origin is the moment when it's the mission, powers, and identity come together because that's the that's the essence of the superhero genre—the way the mission, powers, and identity come together. If you look at like um, you know the Flash, he gets his powers, mm-hmm. he immediately decides what his his mission is, and then he gets his identity through the co- the code name and costume. I was just reading Plastic Man's origin. Right. He gets splashed with the acid. He wakes up in the in the the, the monastery and he realizes he has the powers and immediately realizes he can fight crime with them. Right. Mm-hmm. It gives him a purpose. Heroes and and then the the second thing that happens after somebody gets their powers, they come out publicly. Right. So the Flash Barry Allen gets his powers and then he gets picked up in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Superman. You know, goes and rescues the the uh, the Eve- Evelyn Curry from the electric chair, and then he goes, "Oh, good, I'm not mentioned." But shortly thereafter, right, uh, uh, the editor of the D- Daily Star wants Clark Kent to go out and find out about the Superman character. Right. So there is a sense in which the superhero has this public identity, mm-hmm. right? And what that does is that provides a purpose and an explanation for the powers. Superheroes ask. You know, how should I use my powers to do good? Right. On heroes and in other science fiction super people genres, they say, what do the powers mean to me? What is it? What, what am I now? Mm-hmm. That's what heroes is about. Not how can I use these powers to do good? Right. But 
what does it mean for me that I have these powers? Ah, okay. And that's why they keep trying to go back to their ordinary lives uh, because they don't have a sense of what they can do with the powers. It's what do these powers mean to me mm-hmm. as a human being? And so the second season starts with Hero up in his office in his big corporation, bored. Right. He doesn't know what to do. Right. Well, does the Flash never not know what to do? Does Spider-Man? I mean, Spider-Man quits being Spider-Man, right? Mm-hmm. In issue fifty, and in Spider-Man um, two, and 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 that's because he his powers keep you know, but he he loses his powers in the movie, right? It, but when he has powers, it draws him to with great power must come great responsibility. The heroes of the show, heroes, don't ask that self, don't ask themselves that question. With great power does not come great responsibility. With great power comes great contemplation. Right. And so that's why heroes isn't superheroes. When they have their origin, when Claire jumps off that that uh, big mining thing, right at the first, she doesn't episode. Then realize she's a superhero and go out and put on a costume. You sh- her cheerleaders get hurt, right? Right. So that's cheerleader doesn't make sense as an identity, right? Um. And she doesn't then do something to go public with it, right? Well, there's actually one moment, you know, uh, and I think it may still be in those first couple of episodes where there's the burning car, the burning train. Right. And she rushes in and there's somewhat captured on video this blur that rushed in and saved the day. And of all the people, especially in that first ser- uh, first uh, season, she seems to be the one that seems to be want to go more public with her powers and want to do things, but everybody, her dad, yeah. uh, her adopted father, her later her real father, and everyone else is saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that because you're a freak and people won't understand this, and so therefore you will be outcast. Right, and that's what her powers mean for her as, her, as, a, as a human identity. But mm-hmm. why does Claire rush into that burning chemical factory or the train? Uh, she, I think does she, she rush in a- to save somebody? Not really. If you look back on it, she rushes in because she wants to figure out what she can take. Ah, okay. What do these powers mean for Claire? Mm-hmm. The rescuing someone was just an excuse to do that. I see. But Peter Parker, the Flash, any superhero, right? If they were faced with that, it would even if they didn't want to be seen, take the, the John Byrne Man of Steel mm-hmm. when when Clark Kent saves the plane. Mm-hmm. Right before he becomes Superman, he doesn't do it to see if he can do it. Right, he, he does, does it, it to save the people. Right, right. because right. with great power comes great responsibility. He has a responsibility mm-hmm. to save them, mm-hmm. but he doesn't contemplate what does it mean. Right, and then he gets down on the ground, and people start to tear off his clothes, and so that's why he puts on the costume because the costume enables the mission. Right, so right? heroes really then lacks a mission. Essentially, or the characters lack a mission. And all their missions have been, and I know this is going to seem strange, they haven't been pro-social. Right. Pro, a pro-social mission, it's supposed to be selfless and pro-social. Mm-hmm. And while they, yes, they have sort of saved the world from dictatorship and everything, but they've done so in one sense knowing that they were doing that, right? They were mm-hmm. not only saving themselves, they were also partially saving themselves. Mm-hmm. Because if, if the bomb had gone off, what would have happened is they would have ended up in concentration camps. Right. So while there was a degree of selflessness and pro-sociality about it, in another sense, 
it's protecting their kind. Another great example of the difference between heroes and superheroes Mm -hmm. is last season um, when you had um, the hunter, the the character who's based on uh, Stryker in the X-Men. Right, right. right. You know, oh, well. (laughs) You know, I just wish they wouldn't do that. Whatever. But so they have that sort of Sentinels program. They, um, there's the puppet master guy who, yes. if this were, if he were a supervillain, they'd call him the puppeteer, the puppet master. They refer mm-hmm. to him that way, but it's not a code name. Mm-hmm. But he is, they've got him. They, and, and Claire decides to go help him and free him. Why? Because he's one of us. Right. Now, can you, can you really see, uh, you can see the X-Men doing that. Right, right. X-Men freeing a mutant, right? Saving a mutant from from being jailed because he's right. one of us, right? And you see, it came up a little bit in Civil War, where, uh, but it was really the superheroes trying to break other superheroes out of the prison. Mm-hmm. You did not see the superheroes trying to break the supervillains out of prison, really, right. because right. they're one of us, right? Yes, they were willing to ally with the supervillains strategically mm-hmm. and the, and the government and this is continuing on with the Norman Osborn stuff has been willing to use the supervillains but on an ordinary day you don't see the flash letting wizard, weather wizard go because he's one of them right 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 you, you don't see spider-man letting sandman go because mm-hmm. oh they both have superpowers mm-hmm. why because the mission in the superhero genre overrides that sense of of kind of um you know civilian cape distinction right right right, right? You know, right. you're one of us and so you get this special pass mm-hmm. but claire lets uh, i think his name is bob but the guy who does the the puppet control box she lets him go knowing that he's going to he says he's not going to go off and do evil but there's that smile that he has mm-hmm. that you know He's going to end, of course, he gets brought in by, uh, I can't remember who brought him in, but I think it was Siler. Right. Yeah, Siler brings him in uh, for his own purposes. But you, you, that's a difference, is that the mission does not drive them. Yeah, it seems to be everything is self-centered. Everything mm-hmm. is me, 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 me. So, me. What does it mean for me? Right. And then having them figure that out. So yeah. I wonder, let me ask you this then. The ratings in Heroes have steadily fallen season after season episode after episode sometimes it spikes sometimes it it falls but most of all this season is not as high rated as the first season was when everybody was save the cheerleader save the world do you think part of that is because of the lack of mission yeah that these characters present yes absolutely if if they had a compelling save the cheerleader save the world you got it right, right? but you know when the next one they did are you on the list Mm-hmm. Really? Is that that interesting? Yeah. No. It's it's it doesn't it doesn't have a drive. I mean, right now I've been watching it and they're sort of flopping around because they just they don't know what to do. Noah Bennett doesn't know what to do with his life. So right? they're lost. That's not well. If they were lost, it'd be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, no. in, you know, it, their place in the world, they're lost yes, because they don't know what to do. Yes, they don't know what to do. Um, <laughs> the person with the mission is uh, the guy with the carnival, mm-hmm. you know, and his mission is to protect his kind because he's Magneto, right? But it just 
they're flopping around because they don't have save the cheerleader, save the world. Okay. You know, that worked because it prevent it, and that was the most sort of superhero season of them all. You yeah. know? Yeah. And that's and the one so, everybody watched. So that's one everybody watched. So, so this they, you're gonna go into more detail this this upcoming weekend, twenty third and twenty fourth. No, on this topic. I'm going. Or, I'm going on the 28th. Okay, the 28th. So you're going to go into more detail on this. Is this is yes. an hour long presentation? A two hour long presentation? Uh, yeah, or? like an hour long presentation. Okay. All right. So people, if they're interested, who do they need to contact if they want to go into this? Or is this only uh, for students and and? No, uh, it's 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 going to be in the evening, and okay. so it's going to be open to the university. Um, uh, I could probably find know, it on the University of Oregon website. I think you sent me a link. I don't know if it's in. If it's in that one, yeah. Or if not. they Google, if somebody Google's "understanding superheroes uh, Oregon," they'll find connections to that. Okay, I mean, all right. And the, Ben Saunders' name is uh, is connected to all the stuff. He's the English professor who's putting it together, and so he could be contacted. And I think he's just Ben at uOregon. Okay. Uh, dot edu. Okay, so I'm sure you're probably going to have a lot more people show up at this. Maybe some of them to say, "Hey, wait a minute. Uh, there's nothing. Uh, heroes is not X Men." The yeah. heroes really are superheroes, but really, what we're talking about is trying to define words. And there's mm-hmm. an there was an announcement that NBC made, or that I had made on the website, uh, must have been a week or so ago, about a new NBC series that is being greenlit for a pilot called The Cape. And essentially, it's a story about uh, a cop who is disillusioned and blah blah blah. You know, fill in the blank there, and so he puts on a cape to fight crime and bring down the bad guys. And a lot of people are like, really? And you chimed in with a comment that I thought was was really telling about whether this series will work or not work. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, real doubts about it. And my doubts, it's not based on any um, any real knowledge about the series because I haven't been able to find anything out about it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, uh, there was a show on a couple of years ago called The Cape about Cape Canaveral, and that's what right. I find. Um, <laughs> but... Cape is a synecdoche, which is a type of metaphor where the part stands for the whole. Mm-hmm. You can think of boots on the ground or butts in the seat. Right. Um, and so the problem is that, that cape, you know, and they use this capes and they also use masks right. up, uh, to signify superhero. So the part of the costume, the mask of the cape stands for the whole of the superhero. Mm-hmm. And in, in Astro City... Um, in the DC Universe and Marvel Universe, you can refer to people as capes or powers or masks, um, and then you're referring to a whole category of people. Mm-hmm. But on this show, because he's essentially going to be the only one, right? Um, when he's called the cape, the cape is not an identity. Batman is an identity, mm-hmm. right? You know there's something about the bat. The the bat signifies his biography when the, the, uh, the bat, yeah, the bat crashes the window. window. Right? Yeah. Superman, he's a superman, and it right. signifies his character, right? right? And his costume does this. Um, Iron Man in the movie, they did a great thing with his chevron, which is this chess symbol, mm-hmm. because they made it a symbol of both his biography and his character. It's his character because only Tony Stark can make the palladium reactor, right? Right. It's his genius. That's who he is. That powers the the costume, but also... It's his it's his biography because it represents the wound mm-hmm. that he got mm-hmm. that led to his creation of the, the Iron Man identity and the armor, and so it's a, it's a wonderful combination of those. And the Iron Man is both the iron of the costume, but also he's an Iron Man. He has right. the will and the drive, right? Right. Well, the cape is like saying superhero, superhero man, 
<laughs> and so it, I think I created that character when I was five. Exactly. <laughs> and and so the cape represents the moment he puts on a costume to become a superhero. Mm-hmm. But why? There's there's no other information contained in that. He becomes a superhero because to becoming a superhero is what he needs to do to become a superhero. Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand he's going to try to uh, clear his name and, and reunite with his son. Yeah, like, you I know, don't know how that works. Framed by but... a crime he didn't commit. It's just, uh, it's, it's just sort of weak. It, 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 they, they don't seem to understand what superheroes are about because they've just, they've synecdoked the whole genre and he's mm-hmm. not, he's, he's the cape rather than a cape. Right. And so he doesn't stand for anything other than he signifies superhero, mm-hmm. which I understand why they're doing that because they're saying it's a superhero show, but he's left without his, his costume and, it, and his, his costume doesn't iconically embody his identity. Right. And his code name doesn't embody his identity. Right. Unless right? somehow he captures people by some magical cape that he throws around them. And Does he have a spawn cape? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions about that, but I thought that your response to that in, you know, if they're calling the hero the cape and it's kind of like Powers um, from, um, who is that, Michael Omen? Image. Yeah. Uh, yeah, from from Image. Um, in that Powers is also the, the uh, character's last name, but also represents... Yeah. The superpower people. So it makes perfect sense to call it, that a title. And it's about his relationship with them and right. because his job is to patrol, you know, the, the – to enforce laws within the superhero community in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know, patrol that. Mm-hmm. So it's like in, in, in the uh, – in that journalist uh, comic from Marvel a couple of years – several years ago, you know, she's got the, cape, the mask and cape beat, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah. – because there's a whole group of people, you can say the part stands for the whole, but he is both the part and the whole. Right. And so it it doesn't really work. And what that says to me is that they haven't thought through what the genre means. They don't understand the genre, so they're going to blow it. Do you hear that, Hollywood? Dr. Peter Coogan, he will give you all the answers. He will tell you how to straighten things out and make it work for everybody. Yes. It seems like we're really talking here a lot about uh, the meanings of words, and we're really getting down to the nitty-gritty, which brings us to the other reason why I wanted to bring you on the show was our episode, that's ah, about three or four episodes ago, called Superpowers and the Myth, or, you know, our super... Is the, the super, superhero. is the man of tomorrow the myth of today? Yes. And, you know, we argued kind of back and forth over what is the meaning of myth, and, you know, one definition is that it was used to explain the unexplained and create essentially a religion around uh, certain certain stories or certain events that happened. And my argument was, well, if we use the, just that definition, then no, the superheroes of to, you know the superhero comics that we read today are not the new mythology. Right, and and the thing about myth is, and I thought you guys did a very good job of 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 covering a lot of stuff. Um, and and really, uh, you really dealt with just about every area. But I think there's kind of something you maybe overlooked, mm-hmm. which is um, the kind of cultural anthropological definition of myth. But this gets into you got to look at the functions of myth. Myth exists for a number of reasons. One, it it provides cosmological explanations, mm-hmm. right? Explanations of 
why we're here or, or right. sort of where the universe came the from. The rising and setting of the sun and all of that. Right. Um, it provides explanations for the rise of social and cultural institutions. Why do, why do we get married? Because Zeus and Hera got married, mm-hmm. right? It provides um, everyday sort of folklore. There's folk wisdom in, embedded in mythology. There's, you know, geography. There's all these things. Right. Well, Karen Armstrong, in, in, a, um, in her recent book um, about God, she's got several, um, talks about mythos and logos. Mm-hmm. And what she says is that mythos are these stories, right? And the stories explain the larger things. The right. stories explain uh, uh, where we come from and also how to deal with being human, mm-hmm. okay? So mythos... Uh, provides people with a context that makes sense of their day-to-day lives. Okay. It directs their attention to the eternal and the universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like in ancient Egypt, the whole the, the, the structure of the gods is replicated on Earth with the structure of the, the pharaohs. Mm-hmm. And you fit into this society, and that gives you purpose. In, in, the, in Christian, and I'm going to call it mythology because it's this system of beliefs, right. Christian and religion and mythology are mixed, you have the old great chain of being— Mm-hmm. That that God is to the world as the king is to the country right. as the as the father is to the family, mm-hmm. and so if you if you go if you mouth off to your father, you're giving the finger to God, mm-hmm. right? And you don't do that, and so it helps to keep society in a nice order, and right. it explains why fathers have authority, and explains mm-hmm. why you need to do what your father tells you because right. he is standing in for God, right? So. And it also explains about death and about – it explains the unexplainable. Mm-hmm. Logos, on the other hand, is the rational, pragmatic, scientific thought that enables people to function in the world. And so when people were making, um, you know, axes, stone axes, right. they were using logos. You know, they know how the chips go. Mm-hmm. They don't need a story of, of, you know, the two brothers in the sky who teach them how to make – the axe. They know how to make the axe, right? Right, right. So you have mythos and logos. And what's changed, and at one time, a lot of the things that we explain now through science were explained through mythos, right? We, mm-hmm. God made the earth in seven days and, and, and these sorts of things. Um, and, but now we have logos that explains a lot of these larger meanings, right. a lot of our cosmological questions. Mm-hmm. What logos doesn't explain is meaning. What gives us meaning in our lives? Myth explains that. Now, what is a myth? A myth is a large cultural belief. So, for mm-hmm. instance, anyone listening to the show who's in college believes in the myth of human perfectibility. Right. You believe that you can improve yourself. Mm-hmm. That wasn't always true, right? We didn't always believe that in the West. At one time, uh, um, you know, guilds controlled how much you could sell. They controlled yeah. – you know, if you made shoes, you had to make shoes in a certain way because you, if you came up with a better way to make shoes, they'd come and burn down your house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not making shoes and it was like a mafia thing right? because they didn't believe in individual advancement. Mm-hmm. Well, we do. So we have a story of Batman who has a tragedy and overcomes it through per- human perfection. Right. You go to college because you believe – you base your life on this belief mm-hmm. that – advancing your education and your skills and so forth will improve your life and make your life better. Right. Not everybody believes that. Mm-hmm. 
Let me give you another example of large cultural beliefs. Think of the frontier. Right. What do you think of when you think of the frontier? Well, I'm living it right here. <laughs> Vast open expanses, you know, the unknown certainly is out there. Right. Uh, you know, opportunity. Opportunity. And, and in our country, the frontier has been the site of development, right? right. It's been the site of Americanization where the, 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 the European becomes the American. It's been the site of, you know, blending. And, and, but it's also – it's the site of development, you mm-hmm. know, the, it's the, the uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, these waves of development across the country. What do they think of you say frontier in Russia? Probably not anything good. Well, they think of a billion Chinese who want to come kill yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And they think of Germans who have been trying to come kill them since the 11th century. Right. The frontier is not this open space of personal exploration and social growth. It is, in fact, it, they go east. And you know who goes east in Russia to Siberia? Right. The Prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're going to go die. Yeah. So when Kennedy says space the final frontier, you know what the Russians hear? You're going to put missiles up there and you're going to kill us. Mm-hmm. We, better get, we better get up there first and kill you, mm-hmm. right? We better build an iron curtain, a wall around us so that you can't come and mess with us. Right. You know, we need the Bulgarians and the Romanians and the Poles to absorb the German advance, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and Napoleon too. We need mm-hmm. lots of people in the way so he doesn't kill us. Right. You know? Right. Um, and, and the way the Russians survive the frontier is by running away to the east, letting the invader, letting the Russian winter kill off the invader, and then they come back. Right. So the frontier, the idea of a frontier is a myth. It's a large cultural belief that we base our lives on. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and the Vietnam War is an example of that. The Vietnam War is an extension of the frontier struggle because in Vietnam you had you – know, you hear soldiers talking about Indian country. You know, we're playing cowboys and Indians. They take, they cut off ears to take scalps. Right. You know, um, the uh, the end of. Have you ever seen uh, that John Wayne movie, The Green Berets? Yes. If you remember, how does it end? It ends with John Wayne on the beach with a little boy and the sun going down in the ocean. Mm-hmm. What's the problem with that? Not killing anybody. No, no, no. <laughs> he was in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Where does the sun go down in Vietnam? Yeah, it goes down in the west. Which is in the ocean. Yes. Well, no. no, it's over in... Uh, it's in Asia. It's in Asia, it's Laos, yeah. It's Cambodia. Yeah. It's China. Yeah. So in other words, the Green Berets is not about Vietnam. It's about California, right? Because it ends in California. Mm-hmm. It ends with the ocean, with the sun going down. It's the West. Yeah. We, we, why are we in Vietnam? We're in Vietnam because our pioneers, ancestors fought the Indians. That doesn't make any sense, any logical sense. Yeah. It makes mythic sense. Okay. Right? So, to get back to the point, what myth does is myth explains why we're here and it gives us purpose. Right. right? Now, in, in, a, in sort of America, the, the only sort of religious mythology that's left to do that is sort of Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, that has a kind of complete pseudo-scientific explanation, Adam and Eve, intelligent design, and all that stuff. Right. Also, you know, the the sort of demon-haunted world, the idea that Satan is there and all this stuff has meaning because, you know, um, God is calling you to go to India to do something. Mm -hmm. God is Mm -hmm. calling you to do something. Or is it just an idea that you have? Well, Yes, but if you're if you have a Christian belief, then it is God is doing it, right? Right. And so your world is suffused with meaning. That's what myth does. Myth gives your world meaning. 
Now, what does that mean in terms of superheroes? Well, it means that that the way all genre is myth narratives, right? Because what mm-hmm. genre does is it plays out, it takes it takes cultural tensions and ritualistically resolves them for us. Right. So uh, when we have new technology, like say genetic engineering, how do you figure out how you feel about that and how you think about that? You watch a show called Heroes, right? Which is about you know genetic change and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you you. You, you also have things like, um, you know, we have this myth of, of material success in our country. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got The Apprentice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we have the myth of romantic love. You've got The Bachelor and Bachelorette. Right. Right. But you've also got High School Musical. Right. High School Musical is myth, modern mythology. Yeah. You know, all these genre stories are modern mythology because they, they tell us, they reinforce our beliefs, our big cultural beliefs. Because in High School Musical, if you know Zac Efron and and uh, you know if the two characters the, the don't get together in the end because oh love doesn't work out right what does that mean for your life right 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 that means love doesn't work out in your life but you've based your life on this idea yeah you know, you've gotten married yeah you know the idea that married love you can have it you know that's the myth of romantic love so superheroes work in that sense. As mythology, sure, because they they help to process these daily issues and they help to give us a larger sense, you know. Uh, and you're going to find the myth of technology as savior. Mm-hmm. Well, that comes in through Iron Man. It comes in through Batman's gadgets. Right. It also comes in through you know your reaction to things like uh, new uh, new new medicines. Mm-hmm. You know, you're more likely to go get a new medicine and, and if you see a commercial, but you also believe that science can do some good. Right. So then in that case, if you're looking at, uh, you know, there certainly there are a lot of mythical stories about the underworld and bad things that happen uh, that go on. So then the zombie genre is myth as well, because it plays upon the fears of medicine, viral infection yeah. going out of control. Right, exactly. And if you look at the George Romero, you know, the zombie, the zombies were, it was about consumption. Right. Right? Right. And we do have a myth of consumption that through buying things we can make ourselves happy. But, you know, myths are neither true nor false. They're just believed in or not believed in. And reality Mm -hmm. can bump up against myth. And what myth does, it's like a a net and it catches these fish in it uh, of daily sort of – and and when a fish comes along, an event comes along that's bigger than the net, it breaks out of the net and it gets it has to get rewoven. That's right. why Vietnam came along and broke this myth of sort of American superiority and our ability to go out and continue the frontier struggle. Mm-hmm. And then how do you recuperate that in myth? You do it through MIA, myth making in America, right? The the whole Rambo right. Rambo refought the Vietnam War because they needed to recuperate that myth. And then Reagan and really then, uh, um, you know, the first Gulf War was supposed to be looked at as this sort of cure for the Vietnam syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's because we have this myth that America is the greatest country in the world, the myth of American exceptionalism. Right. And again, I'm not saying it's true or false, mm-hmm. but it's believed in or not believed in. Right. <clears throat> and so – we we needed this story that we tell ourselves. Another definition for myth is a story that over time has gained a signifying function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think maybe that's the one that I kind of 
lean towards a lot is this yeah. it, it has to have meaning over time but you know a lot of these characters is 70 years 80 years enough time well you know characters you know stories i mean how long was the iliad in existence you well, know it's been around thousands of years yeah right you know, and we're still getting something out of it. You know, mm-hmm. these characters will continue to exist as long as they're meaningful, as long as people respond. Although, also, it helps to have a big corporation behind them that can help shape desire. Right. 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 It's not. It's not completely um, on its own. So, you, you have these things, and they they run and run. But you know, they come and go, and different genres come and go based upon what's going to be meaningful for people and help them to ritualistically resolve their um the contradictions that they face there's mm-hmm. there's let me give you an example the myth of the therapeutic adventure right this is a myth that emerged uh in i see it really in like the in like the 70s and 80s but it's it's the idea that you you're unhappy with your life you have uh, you're not happy in your marriage you have bad mm-hmm. relationships with your parents you go off and have an adventure and you come back from that adventure and your problems are solved right that's the story of turner and hooch <laughs> Tom Hanks' character is unhappy with his police duties in a small town, right? Yeah. He he has an adventure, and then he's satisfied with his life. Indiana Jones has a bad relationship with his dad. Mm-hmm. They go off and have an adventure. They don't really talk about and work through their problems, his feelings of abandonment and neglect. Mm-hmm. And they come back, and they're fine. The myth of the therapeutic adventure, it's a, it's, you have a problem that you would go to therapy for, Right. You have an adventure that provides the therapy. Now, that kind of goes back to one of the points that I brought up is a lot of storytelling today is based on this idea of the monomyth where there are certain storytelling points and events that take place in common stories throughout history that play out in today's comic books. Uh, You know, Star Wars is a perfect example of the monomyth, modern myth played out from ancient tales. Right. And there's two, well, and there's two monomyths. There's an American monomyth and a classical monomyth. I'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a second. But yeah, and that works because what, what Joseph Campbell identified in the monomyth was a psychological structure. Okay. The monomyth is really the story of adolescence in some ways. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a brave man, slowly wise. Right. So you see Luke Skywalker goes from being a boy to being a man. Right. And the reason that we've told those stories is the most dangerous thing in the world is a 14-year-old with an AK-47, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Or, or muscles because mm-hmm. boys get this power when they hit adolescence. And if you don't shape that, con- that power into a pro-social uh, you know, out- out- ending, if you don't turn them into warriors and address that, uh, direct that aggression outward, right. it'll get directed inward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Civil unrest and, and right, and so versions. you you well just fights and yeah yeah. So you have to tell them these stories of these heroes going off on these missions, and they they encounter you know there's the there's the celestial marriage and there's atonement with the father, mm-hmm. and this is boys you know t- taking on and they come back with a boon that they give to the community. So it's boys taking on responsibility for the community, right? Right, and the girls' version of that story was the romance. Mm-hmm. Because if girls didn't reproduce the community, the community wouldn't exist, literally reproduce it. Right. And once you got birth control in the, you know, in the, in the 60s, you started having to tell girl stories according to the classical monomyth. You got Buffy and, and mm-hmm. Xena and other female heroes who act like boys who learn to apply their strengths to the community. Because now 
they also have their power and have to learn to attach to the community. And they're, since they're freed from reproduction, they don't, they also have to, you know, be tied to the community that way through, through love and romance, right. but they have to be tied to the community the same way the boys do because they can go off and, and, and use their strengths and turn them against the community. Okay. So cycle, the, the, the classical monomyth has a psychological element to it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why it's stayed. The, 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 the figures in the story all match some kind of psychological state. Right. So, and, and origin stories, superhero origin stories are classical monomyth stories. Right, right. Right, Billy Batson meets mm-hmm. a helper who mm-hmm. takes him through the, the wonder journey. Right. And, and he goes in and has atonement with the father. And then he has the flight and comes back and is returned to the world with the boon of being mm-hmm. Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. And Green Lantern's story is very much the same way too. Right. I heard you. I heard you do the the Campbellian analysis of the Green Lantern story. Yeah, the Emerald Dawn. Emerald Dawn, right? And and it is a storytelling technique. And and Campbell brought this to everybody's or uh, Lucas brought it to everybody's attention through Star Wars, and he did mm-hmm. it. The other monomyth is called the American monomyth, and it's it's from a book uh, called the um, the American monomyth, but the myth of the American superhero. Oh, okay. And this is by uh, Jewett and Lawrence, and it has some problems, but the core of it is, and everybody should know this, is a community in a harmonious paradise. Let me, here's the classical monomyth. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from his mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Mm-hmm. Right? Separation, initiation, return. Boy goes right. off becomes a man, comes back, responsible to the community. Right. The American monomyth, which emerged out of the Western and Daniel Boone and stuff, a community in a harmonious paradise is threatened by evil. Mm-hmm. Normal institutions fail to contend with this threat. A selfless superhero emerges to renounce temptations and carry out the redemptive task. Aided by fate, his decisive victory restores the community to its paradisial condition. The superhero then recedes into obscurity. High noon. High Noon, um, actually most Westerns, most superhero stories, and most successful presidential campaigns. <laughs> okay. I, I noticed this with Jimmy Carter, and yeah. I, you know, because that was the first campaign that I was aware of. Um, but this is really – Ross Perot ran it, but so did Bill Clinton. So did uh, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. A community in a harmonious paradise. America is a good country. Right. Is threatened by evil. You know, those bureaucrats in Washington or the, you know, the right wing or whoever it is. Right. right? Or the outer threat like a communism or something like that. Communism. Normal institutions fail to contend with this threat. Washington isn't working. Mm -hmm. A selfless superhero emerges. I am running for president, not for myself, right? Renounce temptations. Not for Mm -hmm. myself, but for the country. Mm -hmm. Right. Ross Perot said he'd, he'd pay himself a dollar, right? Right. He's not making any money on this deal. Right. Carry out the redemptive task. I am going to redeem this nation. I am going to rescue this nation. I am going to give us back our country. Who has our country, by the way? I'm just confused, <laughs> right? I mean, Howard Dean ran on that slogan. Right, we're gonna, right. We're going to take back the country. People are saying it right now. Uh, uh, you know, the teabaggers and stuff are saying it right now. Take back our country. Well, who has it? Mm-hmm. This outside evil, right? And right. Sarah Palin said, you know, he's not a Barack Obama. I'm going back to where there's real America. Right? Mm-hmm. This idea he's not one of us. Right. He's outside evil. Um, 
his decisive victory restores the community to the paradisal condition. You know, Ross Perot said, I'm going to go in there and fix it, and then superhero recedes into obscurity. I'm going to retire. I'm going to pull out. Right. 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 So the thing is that this American monomyth is in every superhero story. Mm-hmm. Such an extent that I talked to Denny O'Neill about this. Denny O'Neill has been writing American monomythic stories, you know, since the oh, mid 60s. Yeah, forever. Yeah. He didn't know about it. He had never heard of it. Mm-hmm. And when I told him it, he went, hey, oh, my God. And then he started to teach it in his class as a basic story structure. Yeah. You know, the vast majority of, of ordinary superhero stories, formulaic superheroes especially, tell this story, right? Yeah, Superman, there's a, there's a problem. Space aliens, yep. Brainiac, whatever. Superman right. comes in, defeats Brainiac, and then at the end of the day, he flies off. And why does Superman have to do it? Because the normal institutions fail to contend with the threat. Right. Right? And that's why a superhero has to emerge. Okay. Well, okay. And, and so, you know, the presidents run on this campaign, and, and uh, Bush, the, the, the second, or the first Bush, couldn't, had a harder time running on it because mm-hmm. he was from Washington. Mm-hmm. But Reagan ran on that. You know, government is the problem. Right. I'm going to come in, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you go back and listen to George Bush after 2001, after September 11th, mm-hmm. it's pure monomythic speech. Okay? You know, it's, it's we're good. We weren't doing anything. Right? right? Right. We're a harmonious paradise. America is a good country. Right. Completely ignoring the sort of, we've got troops yeah, in Saudi yeah. Arabia and, you know, we're kind of running, you know, we're influencing the governments over there to repress the people and blah, blah, blah. No. But now there's this that. threat of terrorism. These evildoers, right? Right. Evildoers attacked us because mm-hmm. they hate us. Mm-hmm. Normal institutions fail to contend with this threat. We need the Patriot Act. Ah. Right? Yeah. You know, it, you can't, we need extraordinary rendition. We need enhanced interrogation. Mm-hmm. This is not a a law enforcement thing. You can't, you know, Jack Bauer has got to torture people, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Normal, it's, you can't just question people. You can't just interrogate them. Normal institutions fail to contend with this threat. A selfless superhero emerges. Now, Bush played that with the fighter pilot, right? Right. You know, right. if you're not, and and he said, you know, he portrayed and positioned himself as that superhero. Or Rudy Giuliani tried to do this with America's Mayor, right? right? Renounce temptations, you know, I'm, I don't have the exact words for Bush, but, it, you know, he said basically things like, you know, we've got to do this. This is calling. We're being called to it. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it carry out the redemptive task. We're going to go in there and take out the Taliban. We're right. Go in there and take out Saddam Hussein, who is a supervillain. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then aided by fate, his decisive victory returns the community to its paradiso condition. You know, one of the reasons that they went over to Iraq was not just to take out Saddam Hussein, but was to start a whole domino thing that would right. spread democracy against around yeah, the across Middle East. The, yeah. Right? A prosperous and democratic Iraq will provide huge pressure. They were trying to kind of reproduce what happened in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Right? And then superhero recedes into obscurity. I'm going to, you know, do this and and get out of it and be done. You know? And... The thing is, is it's really the first part was really what Bush stressed. But what happened? People bit, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was perfect evidence that they were, you know, um, uh, making up the stuff about the weapons, yeah, of, the mass weapons of mass destruction. All that. Yeah. I, I read it in The Nation. People took apart 
um, uh, Colin Powell's speech to the UN, but people bought it. The new, you know, the 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 news media bought it. Everybody seemed mm-hmm. to go along with it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because mythology provides reasons for why we're here and what we're doing. So then, in this case, then mythology has become so ingrained into our being. It's almost like written into our DNA, right? That almost anything that touches upon these concepts or these ideas can be considered this modern myth. Exactly. And so if you, you activate these things, you're, you're activating somebody's mythology, their mythological frame, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so what superheroes are modern mythology because they help, they ritualistically raise and, and resolve cultural conflicts and tensions Mm -hmm. uh, and they also embody this large cultural mythology that goes back to Puritan captivity narratives that's really embroiled with our America's identity of itself and its view of itself and what things mean you know Mm -hmm. Um, and so you know not every other country would react in the same way you know, and other countries have their own cultural mythology. If you look at Serbia, they have this cultural mythology that they that they have gotten stabbed in the back and sort of screwed. You know, right. and that plays into and it, it it enables someone can come along and use mythic speech to gin up genocide, right? Yeah. Rwanda, yeah. Um, uh, and in in Serbia, they can use it to gin up and generate a war from people who've been living. You know, groups have been living next to each other for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. If you pull on mythology. You can you can get people to act, and that's the difference with mythology is because it's tied into these large beliefs that people base their lives on. You can get them to do things with their lives, and and it's not you know, and these things can be played good and bad because Pearl Harbor was also the American monomyth, right? Right, and you know that was probably a good thing that people responded in that way. That America took that up and yeah, you know, helped. Well, defeat the Nazis. What about, what about this last idea that myth, mythical stories generate religious beliefs? And we've talked about that in, you've already touched on that a couple of times, and I don't want to get into a whole, you know, uh, Christianity is, is a religion or it's true or not true or anything like that. But I, the thing that we talked about in the show is that, you know, we don't have people walking around in the cult of Superman, although in recent DC stories there have been this cult of the Superman, these this uh, people with this religious belief around Superman. The only kind of modern fictional story that kind of has created a religion is Star Wars. Again, you know, you actually have yeah. a Jedi religion that has that has started. Does that really play at all into this concept of of the superhero is is modern mythology? Well, not really, and it's because of the mytho- mythos logos distinction. Mm-hmm. Right, because we have logos to explain, you know, the Big Bang and and that kind of stuff. Right, um, you don't need a, a religious explanation. Religion is is you know mythos taken to that cosmological level. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, and so we don't we don't need that. Um, and the other thing is that uh, superheroes. Are, we live in a culture where we have 
so many forms, so many mythological stories, right? So many myth narratives that superheroes can never become have the centrality that okay. uh, say Greek mythology had, right? Right, right. Or, or whatever. Or or ancient mythology because they were these societies that while they did have some inner cultural and inner society change off and connection they they didn't have that kind of u- more unified central culture you have so many things coming from so many places mm-hmm. that you don't um y- you know you you can't get you can't kind of go back far enough and establish superheroes as this central thing they're just right. not central to, right. to people's existence the only way that does work is through sort of fan culture uh-huh you know there are fans who through Star Trek or Star Wars or something like that, can embed themselves so deeply into a certain cultural text that it serves some of the purposes of mythology in terms of offering them an explanation for, you know, meaning. Their everyday, in their right. everyday life, yeah. Okay. But even with that, people don't then tend to take that into a cosmological explanation. And even, mm-hmm. even Star Wars... As uh, you know, the whole Jedi religion thing, right? Um, you know, that's the really that's really sort of being used as a kind of almost a, a metaphor of religion mm-hmm. rather than a religion itself. I mean, I, right. I, I think that if you pressed a Jedi, they really, you know, well, if at some level they believe that there is a force, that's animism, right? Right. Um, and there's enough other religions that have ideas like that, that mm-hmm. they can draw on it. I mean, yeah, in, in some ways, it's yeah. Buddhism, right? And so right. it's really just kind of an ad- adapted um, uh, form of Buddhism that's put yeah, that fits into, into their, yeah. a, a, a metaphor that works. And, and that's the way it's old wine and new bottles. Mm-hmm. So it is possible that people will develop a, a thing, but they probably won't develop a real cosmology around it. So it's, it's a little bit different from what we think of as religions, although that tends to be because we're used to a kind of monotheistic religion yeah, yeah. That, that has this whole explanation thing, which isn't, hasn't always been true, but I'm not a religion scholar, so mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to... Well, um, neither am I, and that's why I don't want to go yeah. too far into that. <laughs> but I just wanted to know if, you know, if, you know, 500 years down the road, are we going to see... You know, Supermanism. No, and it's because again, it's that centrality, right? Mm-hmm. As, as as I think uh, you may have said it, or Matthew may have said it. Yes, if everything else was wiped out, right? You know, you might have these stories, but you know, superheroes are not central to American culture, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're here, they're important, they're a good metaphor for talking about things and explaining certain things. Uh, if you look at uh, Alexander Rodriguez's use of steroids, he talked about right. how how he had to use them because these superhumans he was around, he couldn't keep up with them. Well, that's mm-hmm. the story of Kingdom Come, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens when people gain these abilities? Then what happens to the ordinary person? The ordinary person feels left behind. Right. Um, but you know, you, you're you're not going to get. It's hard for new religions to develop once you get logos mm-hmm. as the cosmological explanation. Yeah, you know, you you do. You kind of have this return to paganism that's come up. Um, you have cultic religions which have mm-hmm. always sprung up. You know, right. um, 
but you know, major sort of religions, what's more likely to happen is that people will take a religion that already exists and then shape it um, to their needs. Karen Armstrong right. talks about that in her, in her books about God, that, that um, up until um, the, like, the sort of scientific revolu- revolution, you know, mm-hmm. in really the 18th century, there was no fundamentalism. Right. People didn't take the Bible literally. Mm-hmm. People didn't, you know, in many ways didn't take the Greek gods literally. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you get logos to explain cosmology, then you think that oh well, logos can be misapplied to explain, you know, the the, the Bible is taken literally, which many mm-hmm. people view as a kind of misreading of the Bible. You know, um, it's supposed to be metaphoric and symbolic, but um, you. So we're in a different – the thing is we're in a different world now, and and it's unlikely that that's going to go away without some sort of massive cultural breakdown. But then what people would fall back on is what they already know, and they're not going to fall back on superheroes. Yeah. yeah. Right? They're going to fall back on actual religions. Right. Because the actual religions have a much larger – they have a totalizing. They're able to completely explain everything, uh, which – superheroes are not able to do, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah. All right, Dr. Coogan, you've got your book being re-released in April. What is it called again? It's Superhero, The Secret Origin of a Genre. Okay, and don't forget, uh, you can go check out Dr. Coogan's presentation October 28th at the University of Oregon, Heroes Ain't Superheroes. And uh, Peter, I want to thank you again so much for taking a part of the Major Spoilers experience and the, and the podcast. It's always great to have you uh, here. Anything else you want to plug really quick before we go? Um, yeah, just real quick. We didn't talk about some of the other conferences. We're also oh, okay, running sure. – uh, the Institute for Comic Studies is also running uh, conferences at C2E2, which is the Chicago Comic and Entertainment Expo. Okay. Um, and uh, also at the New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're calling that the uh, Comic Studies Conference. And, okay. Uh, so those are all. If you go to the Institute for Comic Studies website, um, I, I got. I have to put them up, but I will get them up. <laughs> um, and there's uh, so they're out there. The calls for participation are out there, and uh, anybody can get me at comicstudies at gmail dot com. Okay, and we'll post some links to some of these conferences in the show notes that people can check out. And uh, Dr. Coogan, once again, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks, Stephen. All right, everybody, make sure you tune in on Tuesday. We're going to have another fascinating discussion. This time we're going to take a look at an adaptation of uh, that Darwin Cook has just done of The Hunter. It's going to be a different kind of show, and we will see you then because we know that you love comics, and we do too. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at Majorspoilers.com, and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers Forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash majorspoilers and on MySpace at myspace.com slash majorspoilers. Fat Dick's revision of Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, they kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. 
think about a better way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I mean terrific this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. If I'm Stark Raven, rich like a man of iron, I might not be surprised to find that I might actually have the hard cold to follow an entire storyline. But would I really even need to read upon all those escapades? I mean, who needs such distractions when your sister's such a babe? But the downside is such a beast. Being shot up in a fine be in the Middle East with a gang sign throwing soldier. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler Whoa, 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 whoa What a major spoiler Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2009 Life's better with American Family Insurance Because our home policies help protect your dreams And come with peace of mind Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.